So we've been we're managing to stay with the program with the with the daily daily uh, aliyah. Today, um, Friday, we have the sixth aliyah. And we have something special here, which is that we have a section from the davening from the daily prayers, which we say in the morning at night. They're known as the Shema. And so today we're going to learn about the second paragraph of Shema, which begins Vahaya im Shema. It will be if you will listen. So that'll be nice to be able to study something that we're reading every day. But here's how the Aliyah begins. The land that you are coming to it, there, to inherit it, it's not like the land of Egypt. So Moshe is telling the Jewish people, you're used to this land of Egypt where there's there's irrigation, right? The, the Nile irrigates, and that's how the agri agriculture works over there. Verse 11, but the land that you're going to, it's the land of mountains and valleys. It absorbs water from the rains of heaven. Verse 12, so this is a land that God, your God, looks after. This was a verse, by the way, that the Rebbe cited many, many times in, during the Gulf War, uh, or leading up to the Gulf War, in 1991, I believe. Was it 1990? I don't remember. Um, I think 1990, no, 1991. Um, with the Rebbe, the, the, you know, the Iraq, Saddam Hussein, his name be erased, was threatening to send chemical weapons to, to Israel. Scud missiles, and he had done so. He had sent, um, you know, used chemical weapons on his own people. But when he had in, he had invaded Kuwait, and the U.S. was trying to get him out of there, he did the the, um, you know, he said, "If you if you attack me, I'll attack Israel." Israel, of course, had nothing to do with it. So everybody was going into bomb shelters and, and getting the gas masks, and the Rebbe said that Israel is the safest place in the world. With all of that fear, uh, the Rebbe was saying it's the safest place in the world, and he would cite this verse. And, of course, we know the story in the end that the 39 Scud missiles that fell upon Israel in, in very, very, um, um, you know, in places where the, the, it landed in inhabited, inhabited areas, and miraculously, nobody was directly killed by, this, by any of the Scud, these 39 Scud missiles and how they... Um, you know, there was one Scud missile that landed, I think it was in Lebanon or Saudi Arabia, where, where there was a U.S. A US camp, a U.S. army, and I think hundreds were killed from one Scud missile. These were 39 Scud missiles. Nobody died directly from it. There was one or two, I think, who died from the gas mask or from a heart attack, but nobody direct, uh, killed directly by these Scud missiles. And it was clearly a miracle at the time everybody saw this was the hand of God. But beforehand, the Rebbe was saying, there's nothing to worry about. People who said they're, they're going to Israel and they're thinking of canceling their tickets. The Rebbe said, no, uh, this is a land that God watches from beginning of the year to the end. And he would cite this verse, the eyes of God are upon this land from the beginning of the year to the end of the year.
let's look at Rashi over here, verse 12. The Lord, the Lord your God looks after this land. So Rashi asks, does he not look after all lands? And Rashi explains, this is from the Sifri, that by with God's caring for the land of Israel, so it's as if he's only caring for the land of Israel, but with that caring, he cares for all the other lands along with it. The beautiful idea of what the relationship of, of the, the specialness of the land of Israel. Verse 13. Now here we begin the portion, the section of what that we read each day as part of the Shema, the second paragraph of the Shema. It will be if you will listen. Yes, listen to my commandments. That's a double expression. Rashi will, will address that. In the, in the English, you don't see it. It just says, if you hearken to my commandments. But in the Hebrew, if listen, you will listen to my commandments. That I am commanding you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. That's a, a, a fragment sentence, so I'll give you the next verse, which says, then I will give your reign in the right time, etc., etc. And then, so you see how that follows from with how the Aliyah begins, that this is different from Egypt. Egypt, you've got the Nile. You don't need God. You have your, um, your pension fund. You have, you're all set. You don't need God. Everything you've got, you've got tenure. But in the land of Israel, there's, it requires a relationship with God. You don't get things don't come for free, as we as we saw uh, with eight to be mentioned about Esav and Edom that he got his land Harseir, he got it for free, but Jacob has to work has to work for the land of Israel. So here the metaphor is of rain that the rain you get you're dependent upon the rain, but of course it goes beyond just being dependent upon the rain. It's like I heard this I heard this from Isaac Sensino Yitzhak Sensino. He said, you know, um, sometimes you give your kids you give them a credit card. And you never hear from them when they go off to college. They won't call you. But if you give them a, a debit card and you put a little bit of money on it, and then every time it runs out, they've got to call you. Ah, you'll hear from them. So he said, "This is what God does with the Jewish with the Jewish people. He doesn't give us for free. We, we've got to call in from time to time in case we forget about him. We have to call in. So this is the difference between the land of Egypt and the land of Israel. The land of Egypt, you don't have to call. The Nile is going to take care of you. But in Israel." You've got to pray to God for rain. But as I said, it goes beyond the metaphor of rain that we always have to be in a relationship with God. And um, ideally, we do that in the positive. And, but if, God forbid, we forget, then um, we may receive a reminder to call home. So he says, okay, if you, so what does Rashi say? Right, so Rashi tells us that this that this is going back on what he said before that that Israel is a place where you need rain. What is this double expression? If you will listen, yes, listen. So Rashi says, if you will listen to the old, meaning if you study what you've already learned, then you will listen to the new. You will have a new and deeper understanding of what you are studying. Another very important thing in this verse, as we've seen this idea that I'm commanding it to you today, that every time you read this, it is today. Um, right? That you're supposed to look at it as this is brand new, hot off the shelf. 
and, ex and exciting as the first day you heard it. Rashi says to love the Lord. You shouldn't say I will learn in order to become rich. How do you rich? I guess I guess you could become rich from learning Torah. I'm not sure how. I, I don't, that hasn't worked for me, but uh, I guess there's a way of doing it. Or that I should be called a rabbi. Or that worked for me. Or that I receive a reward. Rather, the way your approach should be, everything you do should be done me'ahava from love. And ultimately, the honor will come. Don't worry, the honor is coming. But don't do it for the honor. Do it for the love. What does it mean to serve God with all your heart? A worship that is with the heart. How do you worship God with your heart? With your, with your hands, you can give charity to the poor. You can put on tefillin with your mouth. You can eat matzah. You can speak words. But how do you serve God with your heart? The answer is, this is prayer. And prayer is called an avodah. Avodah, we say, we say to serve him, but avodah is work. And um, the Torah is telling us that we have to do this work of, of worship. It's worship, the worship of the heart, which is prayer. Now, the, this portion, the second section of the Shema, in a way mirrors and has a very similar language to what we had back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, last week's parsha. So, but but there, there are variations, there's, there's subtle differences. So here Rashi points out to one of the differences that in the first portion of Shema that begins, Vahafta, you shall love, it says you shall love Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul, but in the singular. And here it says it in the plural, with all your hearts. In English, it doesn't make a difference, but in Hebrew, so Rashi tells us that what we learned last week in the first portion was <coughs> addressing the individual. And here, this portion is speaking to the Jewish people as a community, which of course is a very important idea in general in our whole approach is that on the one hand, we are individuals in an individual relationship with God, but we're also in a communal collective relationship by the Jewish people with God. <clears throat> Verse 14, so if you listen and you do all that stuff that we just mentioned, I will give you your, the rain of your land in its time, the early rain, the late rain, you'll be able to gather in your grain, your wine, and your oil. As Rashi says, if you do what you need to do or what you're required to do, I will do what I'm required to do. Now, what does it mean that the, the rain is going to come in its time? When is the time for rain? Rashi says, Balelois. Not only going to have rain, but it's going to be timed well. It's going to happen at night, so it will not burden you. You'll still be able to walk around the streets while you're sleeping, it'll rain. But while you're, you're at home, it'll rain. And a second interpretation that's not enough. Rashi gives a second interpretation. He says, When is in its times, Belele Shabbatot on Friday nights when everybody is at home having chicken soup? So very interesting that this is, um, you know, this, these two interpretations and this idea that God is not only going to provide the rain, but provide it in a way that's convenient for us, either at nights or especially on Friday nights. <clears throat> Sorry. 
um, um, on the words vasafta diganachu, you will gather in your grain. Rashi is telling us, Rashi tells us that the verse is saying God is promising not only you're going to have grain, but you're actually going to be able to collect it. It won't be taken by your enemies. Verse 15, in other words, it's possible to have blessings, but we don't always get the chance to reap those blessings. And so the part of this blessing is that we the blessings come and we have the capacity and ability to receive them. Verse 15, I'm going to give grass in your field for your livestock you will eat and you will be sated rashi says what is what is the verse promising over here over here what is the blessing so rashi tells us you're not going to have to lead them to distant pastures there's going to be enough grass right there The second part of the verse says, you're going to eat and you're going to be satisfied. What is, what is the blessing there? Rashi tells us, this is another blessing. It's possible to have bread and to eat and you're not full. So this is a special blessing that the bread that is going to be made from your grain is going to be fulfilling. It's going to be sa- you're going to be satiated with it. And of course, you can broaden that and think about it in, uh, in a spiritual sense, that in life in general, the things that we're doing, that we are, we are that we're consuming, that they give us satisfaction, as opposed to those things that you consume more and more, and yet you still feel this void. So here is a, br- a blessing in the bread, in the physical bread, that is going to be the type of bread that satiates you. But you could also think of it in the, in the larger sense of in general in life, to be satiated, to feel fullness and satisfaction with what you're doing. Verse 16, here comes the warning. He says, be careful, lest you turn away and worship strange gods and bow down before them. And here we see a repeat of the same idea which we've seen earlier in the Parsha, which is that because you're going to have all this good stuff, you're going to have food, you're going to be full. I just read yesterday from the Chida. Chida was a Sephardic scholar, Rabbi Chaim Yosef David Azulai from Jerusalem. 1800s, I believe. And he wrote many, many, many books. And I was just reading something that he wrote yesterday about fasting. You know, why, what is this idea of fasting in, in Judaism? We fast on Yom Kippur, on Tisha B'Av. What, what is the idea of fasting? And he said that when you fast, you feel weak. And you recognize it's, it's kind of a, a, a blow to the ego. When you're full and you just had a nice hamburger or a steak, you feel full, you feel like you can take on the world, you feel invincible. But when you haven't eaten in a few hours, certainly for a whole day, suddenly a week, and you realize, wow, I'm not as powerful as I thought I was. I'm actually pretty fragile, just a few hours without having some food, and I'm like, I can't do anything. So it's so the fasting is a reminder that you know, don't don't get ahead of yourself. You're 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 human and you can't even survive, you can't even operate without this, without food. So it's, it's really a, a, a paradigm shift that's happening or should happen during a fast instead of just quetching about it. <laughs> so uh, what Rashi is saying here is when you eat and you're satisfied, that could lead to you kicking, rebelling. The word for rebel here is, is actually to kick. When does the person rebel against God, 
when does the ego take over and say, I don't need God? That's when it, out of satiety, as it says, lest you eat and be sated and your herds and your flocks multiply. What does Moshe say after that? He says, your heart grows haughty and you forget the Lord, your God. Right, once you have the credit card, you're like my, my the six-year-old, he doesn't understand how the credit card works. I also don't understand how it works, but for him, it's very clear. The credit card, you can just buy whatever you need. There's nothing behind it. So here too, you see, you see the success and you, you forget where it comes from. And look, we don't need God anymore. So that's a danger. Sartem, you turn away. Now we hear the verse says, Vesartem. Okay, so this is very important. Vesartem. Okay, so be careful lest your 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 um your heart be misled. Vesartem means you will turn away and serve other gods. So you could read that as one phrase. You will turn away and serve other gods. Rashi says, no, these are two things. These are two different things. This is a this is a um a process. This is a devolving. It says, first, you turn away. Turn, you're not yet serving other gods. Serve other gods? I mean, that's ridiculous. I'm a Jew. Why would I serve other gods? I'm an, I'm a rational human being. Why would I serve false gods? So the first, But the first step is a turning away, right? The heart is, is turning away from God. In action, a person is turning away. Rashi says, the person is turning away from the Torah. He says, I don't really need to do these commandments. Um, you know, I don't need to pray as, as the verse had said but i'm not serving idols i'm just not doing these various mitzvot what does the verse tell us if vasartim if you're going to turn away it's not going to end there right you don't get lost in the forest from the first step the first step was just you know one step off of the path eventually what that leads to if you don't turn around you're going to start worshiping strange gods you have to have a god that you worship so if you're not going to be worshiping the real God with the uppercase G, capital G, you will end up worshiping, there's no neutral um, space, you'll end up worshiping false gods and bowing down to them. And that's what Rashi says, if you, if you depart from the Torah, because of that, you will end up serving other gods. Let me continue with Rashi. When a person separates from the Torah, he ends up attaching himself to idol worship. And he cites from King David in the book of Samuel, he says that God has chased me away from being in his, um, in, in his heritage and saying, go worship strange gods. So the question is, what, well, who's telling him go worship strange gods just because he can't be in the place of God? So Rashi explains from the Sifri that he meant to say, if he's not able to occupy himself with the Torah, then you're putting me in a position where that could lead to the worship of other gods. Now, what does it mean, other gods, right? This translation here has strange gods. It's probably better. But what does it mean? There's only one God. Why does the Torah always refer to these other gods? Who are these other gods? On sale at Walmart. Elohim Achedim, says Rashi, They are strangers to those who worship them. They call out to this God, 
but that God doesn't answer him. So it becomes, so the, 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 these gods, so quote unquote, so I guess if you just put in quotes around the gods, everything would be fine. But it means that they are like strangers to those who worship them. They don't respond. They're not there for you when you need them. Verse 17, I'm going a little bit over time today because this is a portion that we read every day. I want to give it a little more time. But we will pause in a moment for Q and C. Yud Zayin, verse 17, God will be angry against you. He will, he will hold, he will close off the heavens. There will not be rain. And the earth will not provide its produce and you will be lost quickly from the good land that God gave you. Verse 18. What shall you do to prevent all of this? Okay, that was my interpretation. <laughs> Let me let's go with Rashi first. Verse 18. So you shall place these words of mine upon your hearts and upon your souls. Again, using the plural, speaking to the community, the communal. And you shall bind them as a sign upon your arm. This, of course, referring to the tefillin. They shall be as ornaments between your eyes. Now, what's the flow over here? Okay, He's saying, keep the commandments. Then it's going to rain. Everything's going to be good. You're going to be full. But once you're full, make sure you don't rebel. Don't turn away. Because if you do, then God is going to get angry at you. And there won't be any rain. And you're going to be lost from the land. You're going to go into exile. So what's, what's the next verse? 18 says, put these things upon your heart. Is that to say, well, if you do this, then it will prevent all those bad things from happening? Rashi says, no. Rashi says, what the verse 18 is saying is, after you've been exiled, even after you've been exiled, don't say, don't say, well, we've been exiled, so forget it. The deal is off. We're done with all of this. God exiled us, so we're not doing the mitzvahs anymore. Says no, 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 no. After you are exiled, make yourselves distinctive with my with the commandments. Put on tefillin. Make mezuzot. Why? So that these will not be new to you when you return. Set up markers for yourself. So this is very interesting. What Rashi is saying that the way to what you, what should you do in the exile? It's almost like saying there is going to be an exile, but there's a way to behave in the exile. Don't say that God has abandoned you and it's over. No, you're coming back. So what should you do in the meantime in the exile? Continue to put on tefillin, make mezuzot, and there's something specific about these mitzvahs. Of all mitzvahs, Rashi is pointing out to us that we're distinctive by these things. You know, you look at a house with a, with a mezuzah. This is a Jewish home. We put on tefillin. Nobody else does that. A lot of things were adopted. The Sabbath was adopted. Um, the kosher laws was adopted by, by um, Islam, the, uh, the halal in some ways. But tefillin, I think, remains distinctive that we have the tefillin. So it reminds us of who we are, that we're different, that we're distinct as, as, a, as a, um, a message for the time of the exile. And interesting the way he puts it, that when you come, when you come back, you're still going to have, you're still going to know what to do you still have, have the mitzvahs. That's interesting because on the one hand, it seems to say 
that during the exile, you don't really need it. It's just to keep practicing for when you get back. But I don't think that that's the intention here. Um, it sounds like it's more like during the exile, you need this is what's going to keep you alive so that you will come back. Have our research team look into that. Verse 19, you shall teach your children to speak of them, these words, when you're sitting at home and when you go in the way and when you lie down and when you arise. Now, when exactly are you supposed to start teaching your child Torah? Says Rashi, And from the moment that the child is able to speak, you shall teach him. And what should you teach him? There's a specific verse. Verse from Deuteronomy towards the end of the book. Torah tziva lanu Moshe. This Torah was commanded to us by Moses, and as the verse ends, it is the inheritance to the congregation of Jacob. Part of his learning how to speak should be in Torah. From here we said that from when a child begins to speak, his father should speak to him in Hebrew, in the Holy Tongue, and teach him, to and teach him Torah. Verse 20, and you shall write them upon the doorposts of your home and upon your gates. That's, of course, the mitzvah mezuzah. Verse 21, so here we have three mitzvahs. Mezuzah, tefillin, tefillin mezuzah, and education, Jewish education, which is really incredible. As, um, you know, of course, we have 630 mitzvahs. When he's talking about specific in the exile, these are, and you can, you can see it, that this, these are essential ingredients to um survival in the exile. Verse 21, this is the last verse of that your days may increase in the days of your children on the land which the Lord swore to your forefathers to give them as the days of heaven above the earth. So this seems to be different than what Rashi told us before. Here it seems to be saying that if you do these things, you will stay upon the land. Even and Rashi himself says, If you do so, then you're going to be on the land for, for many days. But if you don't do this, you won't be on the land. You're going to go into exile. Finally, so the research department will get into that. The last Rashi here on the, of the Aliyah says, to give to them. It does not say to give to you, right? It suddenly goes impersonal and says to give to them, that, that, that um, God swore to your forefathers to give to them. What, what do you mean? Why not say to give to you? And that's how it, it, it always says it. So why does it say to give to them? Says Rashi that this is a, a, um, a hint to the idea of the resurrection of the dead and that it has its basis in the Torah. The Torah does not... Um, Obviously, Moses certainly does not anywhere say this idea of resurrection of the dead, which according to Rambam is one of the principles, 13 principles of the Torah, that then the future, after the times of Mashiach, or during the times of Mashiach, the dead will come back to life. But this is one of the places, and the Talmud has a whole discussion about it, where the, 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 um, the heretics who would challenge the rabbis and they would say, you know, we don't, where do you see in the Torah this idea of resurrection of the dead? And so the, the, the Torah, the Talmud has a whole discussion about, well, this verse hints to it and that verse hints to it. So this is one of the verses that hints to the idea that there will be a resurrection of the dead because it, it says that God swore to give to them, not to you. He swore to give it to you as well, but to give to them, alluding to them, uh, the, the, the future when the, the, the dead will come back to life, meaning 
giving to them the, the, the patriarchs, right? So did the patriarchs ever get the land of Israel? They never, they never got, they lived in the land of Israel, but it wasn't given to them. So what does it mean that uh, the Lord swore to your forefathers to give to them, but they never got to go in? I mean, they were not there when the land was given to them. Says Rashi, this is a hint to the resurrection of the dead because they will come back to life. Your forefathers will come back to life in the times of Mashiach. Slightly before, as the Talmud says in Tractate Yom about certain individuals, righteous, and they will inherit the land in the times of Mashiach. So that's very interesting. We talked about how Shema Yisrael is an allusion to the time of Mashiach because as Rashi says, now he's only the Lord, our God, but in the time of Mashiach, he will be the one um, accepted God by all people. And here the end of it also ends with a hint to that time, the time of Mashiach. We'll stop there. Whew, that was a marathon and open it up to your questions and comments if you're still awake. Well, there's so there's so much in this. I don't know where to start. I, I was uh, I was thinking about uh, when it was saying if you're not you're not worth this slippery slope. I guess if you're not worshiping God, it will lead to worshiping false gods. I guess that could also mean because some people won't turn to false gods, but they'll turn to atheism. They'll turn to belief in nothing except what you seem to create as meaning in your own life, a kind of humanistic viewpoint. But if it's us creating it, we become gods ourselves, which is not right. It's just to me, that just doesn't sense the right way to go. Um, so you're going to turn to either false gods or your ego, which, which isn't any better. So I, I think it's very well put. You better stay with the real God. Excellent. Thank you. Um, that it's an interesting thing of, uh, you know, God will forgive you the concept of that. Um, and it occurred to me, and I wonder if your thoughts on this, Rabbi, that when you were saying, if you stray, if you go away from the mitzvot, if, you know, and then this will happen. However, you can still put the tefillin back on. You can come back. Um, and it seems like those tie together, the going away and the come back, because if when you went away, you couldn't come back, then everybody would just be, you know, waiting for someone to do something wrong and then you're gone kind of thing, you know, and you never can come back, you know, and, but yet the, we made mistakes in the desert, which cost us 40 years, right. And, and a number of different punishments. And yet we came back and there's a, there is a way back. And it seems to tie that together more than I, God will always forgive you. God moves on that kind of thing. Um, um, it's turning around and saying, well, I better have a way to, for the people to come back because they're going to make mistakes. We do the, what is it? Talk noon where we hit our chest and, right. you know, and it, it, it kind of is an interesting tie together of all that thinking. Beautiful. That's very well put. 
and you reminded me that there's a great metaphor for this, which is dieting, right? So those who are ever engaged in dieting know, or any behavior that you're trying to, any discipline that you're trying to do, you want to exercise every day or whatever it is. When you fail, there could be, there could be the inclination towards, ah, forget about it. I'm never going to succeed at this. So not only am I going to eat one piece of chocolate cake, I'm going to eat the whole cake because anyway, this is not working. <laughs> right. So the Alter Rebbe talks about this. He doesn't say about dieting, but he says about, you know, in our, in our moral challenges or our, our, uh, our spiritual challenges, where if we fail in something, the great danger is even worse than the failing sometimes is that that failing could lead you to just give up. And uh, I've, I've, I like the metaphor of, you know, if you're in your lane on the, on the highway, <laughs> right? And you, and you started swerving for some reason. So you should just turn the wheel back and keep going straight. You shouldn't say, ah, oh. oh, I swerved. So I'm just going to give up the steering wheel and let it go wherever, <laughs> wherever, you know, so that, that, but that sometimes their inclination, since I failed, I'm a failure and I give up and forget the whole thing. So that's what I that's what I heard when I when I saw that that Rashi. It's like, okay, we're in exile, forget it. We're just God given up on us. We're just we're just not good. And and we're never gonna make it. So like as you're saying, that's that is not the right approach. The approach is made a mistake, that's okay, keep going. And and um, it's gonna end up good. In fact, it's gonna end up we're going, to, we're going to come back to the land of Israel. So this is collectively with the Jewish people, but it's true of, of, uh, of us individually. Then we make a mistake not to say, forget the whole thing, keep going, get back in your lane, just turn, turn the steering wheel straight and keep going. Is it, now, is it okay to, is it, ex, is it okay to extend that into uh, multiple, you know, into that we come back reincarnation because you're not just people maybe mistake keeping going right now and then they you know and give up within that they've got to look at the big picture is that people come back and you keep going all the way through that right because right. sometimes if there's something that went bad your passing away is is repentance or forgiveness you know that you're forgiven i there's this whole concept that more that is bigger than just this life right the afterlife the comeback um and you keep going and doesn't that give us perspective very good that's an excellent point excellent point well isn't it like the imperfection i mean following on from that point isn't it that imperfection is part of is part, oh, so you can't hear me? Um, you're, you're a little mumbly. Like, I mean, you come across as that. I know you're not mumbling, so I don't mean to say that. <laughs> um, imperfection, what was I guess? Imperfection seems to be what's built into this. Oh, that's a great point. So right back to, I mean, right back to Adam, there was not imperfection, but there was a fall. There was the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and a fall into an imperfect state and it seems like this is a built-in part of it but if we get caught up in this imperfection and start judging it and giving up 
That's the worst thing that can be done. We have to keep coming back. I think that's what you're saying. We have to keep coming back to believe in God, to trust in God, becoming more perfect or more or clo more closely aligned, maybe is a better way to put it, to God. That's a great point. I think. Rabbi? Mm -hmm. We're going to we default to you, Rabbi. Yeah, yes. right. <laughs> no, I think these are, these are excellent points. And uh, welcome back, Carrie. It's good to see you again. Hi, Carrie. Hello. Thank you. I have a quick question. I don't know if it's okay uh, time for that. Absolutely. So We're on a roll, there, Carrie. Uh -huh. <laughs> is there a Chabad tradition about, like, giving the tefillin to young men and putting it on for the first time and what is the tradition and where do they get the tefillin and who gives it and what how does that work typically well so like you know the mitzvah to put on tefillin starts like all other mitzvahs when the boy turns 13 or for a girl not tefillin but the other mitzvot uh, at age 12 so as i always tell the bar mitzvah boys when is your bar mitzvah and they'll think about, you know, when is the celebration? When is the Shabbat? They're going to be reading from the Torah. Of course, a trick wow. question. And it's really the day that they turn 13. And on the Hebrew, on the Jewish calendar, they've got to go look at their, you know, what was the Jewish calendar? The day of their birth on the Jewish calendar. But more precisely, when is the moment that they become bar mitzvah? There's an exact second. We know to the second when the kid will become bar or bat mitzvah. And that is the night before the day of, of the road, because as we know in Judaism, the day starts the night before, uh, not at 12 a.m., but at at uh, sundown or, you know, when the stars come out, when the, st when the three stars come out, the three medium stars come out, that's when you're, and so we look at on the calendar at, at you know, if it was happening now, it would be at 8.51 p.m. on August 1st is your bar mitzvah, like, you know, mark that moment. You're becoming bar mitzvah. Anyway, that was a little bit of a, of a tangent, but you start have to start putting on the tefillin when you're 13. But putting on tefillin, just like we have all other mitzvahs, we, we educate our, our kids to practice the mitzvot, even though they're not obligated to do them because we want them to know what to do when they become of age. So with tefillin, that's a little trickier because you don't want a six-year-old putting on tefillin. This is a very holy object. You know, uh, it's more than the tzitzit, for example. So tzitzit, we will put on a child even at the age of three and we'll have all children saying blessings and keeping kosher and all of that and keeping Shabbat to, you know, to, 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 to some extent, you know, with, with varying levels of, as they get older, be, you know, more careful with what they're doing. But the, with the tefillin, it's tricky because it's a whole, very holy object with God's name as opposed to tzitzit are also a holy object of sorts, but you know, God's name is not written on the tzitzit anywhere. Whereas the tefillin are a holy object, God, God forbid it falls on the floor, you know, that's a serious matter. So what is done in Chabad is that two months before the bar mitzvah, child is 12 years old in 10 months, child will begin putting on tefillin. I think there were other exceptions, you know, in some cases of stories of, you know, somebody who was 12 years old started putting on tefillin. But typically the story is, custom is, at the age of 12 and 10 months, two months before the mitzvah, we'll start training them to put on tefillin. Of course, they will not say the blessing, interestingly. They won't say the blessing on it because they're not yet obligated to put on tefillin. They will only say the blessing once they put on the tefillin on, and on, the, on their birthday. Now, that's interesting to think about it now. The, 
you know, that's the only mitzvah where we say, don't say the blessing on it until you're actually obligated. We don't say that about the tzitzit. The children do say blessing on the tzitzit. Maybe it's a way to distinguish for them, you know, now it's for real. Now you're putting it on as a mitzvah. So that is the custom. I hope that was your question because I gave a pretty long answer. That would be really sad if you were asking something else. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what I wanted to know. I was curious about the custom of with putting on to film for the first time. So now you answered it. Thank you so much. I'm going to really miss our uh, daily classings. You're working on your and I respect and understand that. But it's been wonderful to study with you. I've learned so much from you, and it's been a pleasure, the highlight of my day. So thank you so much for this. Well, we're, we will continue. We're just going to do it at a different time slot. And you'll continue okay. to post it? Of course, of course, yes. And Will, is it um, for a period of time while you do the book, and then we come back, or do you think it's probably going to just stay at night? Uh, we'll see. Remains to be seen. Okay, that's fair.